going to leave the baptismal open all day. Um, so if the Lord's speaking to you and uh, you uh, believe, um, well, you know, it's the first thing he asks us to do, repent and be baptised. There is, there is no blockage to becoming baptised. There's no right and wrong time. If, you're, if your faith has been placed in Christ, you don't then perform your way through holiness to be ready for baptism. Uh, none of us are any more holy than anyone else. We're all incredibly holy. Uh, baptism represents the new life, the gift that God's given us. So uh, if you'd like to do that this morning after the service, uh, we'd love to do that. Linda, Linda has nothing else to do but get wet again. And, um, or you may have a friend or family member who will like to be part of that. Happy to help. Great. Or tonight. So baptism really is a picture of new life. Um, it's, a, it's a picture. It's a hope. It's a reality and a hope all at the same time. It's, it's new life received, worked out for the rest of our life. We still get it wrong all the time. We're still as imperfect as we used to be, but we work this stuff through. But it also symbolizes this new life that's promised it's in full. We've received it in full as well. And 1 John 3, 2, uh, the apostle talks about this tension, uh, which we have a nice little theological term for, but he says, Dear friends, now we are children of God. So now, now. We place our faith in Christ, we are grafted into the family, we are children of God. And yet, we, yet what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So the not yet, we live in the now, we have it now, we try to realise it more and more through life, but there comes a moment where that which is not yet becomes a reality. And this is what I want to talk into today, it's a great Christian hope, and over the last five messages that we've brought We've had a series called Unresolved, where we're talking about the unresolved questions that people have in their heart, and we've tried to bring it from the perspective of someone who's not really a churchy-type person. How do they ask the questions? What questions resonate in their heart in a society that's not very sin-aware? They don't think in terms of sin and judgment and, and you know, all that kind of stuff. They, they approach things from different ways. And so we've asked some deep questions, and we've given, uh, at some instances, deep answers, sometimes a bit more broad. Uh, who am I? What's my purpose in life? And, and today, we really want to consider the question of uh, what hope is there for the future? What hope does this represent, this thing called baptism? What's it really all about? Because hope has really become the, the word of the generation as far as this is what is felt like missing. This is the thing that they're most aware that they lack. This generation doesn't go through life thinking, oh, gee, I'm lacking faith right now uh, or I'm lacking love right now. It's I'm lacking hope right now. Suicide rates are sky high, depression, anxiety, sky high. And yet so Christian and Christianity has the opportunity in what is, as many would describe it, one of the most difficult moments of Christian life in the West where uh, we're in a post-Christian world where people think we're, we're beyond all that. But they're pre-Christian in their understanding and in the, in the sense that they have no idea what they've rejected. I'm sure if we got into a conversation and someone said, I don't believe in God, and they described who that God was they don't believe in, we would say, I don't believe in that God you don't believe in either. It's, it's pre-Christian understanding. God is good all the time. But this whole idea of losing God that this generation has, has used as a catchphrase means that this generation has lost hope more than any other generation, with good reason. The human soul needs a worthy path forward. The human soul is not a human soul in the absence of hope. It's one of the things that defines us. We need, a, we need a path forward. We need a glimmer on the horizon that we can aim for, a future worth striving for. And so this generation, more than any other generation for probably hundreds of years, is asking, what hope do I have for the future? They're asking it more 
than the generation that entered into World War I. They're asking it more than the generation that entered post-World War I into the Depression. They're asking it more than that same generation that went into World War II, where 40 million people died, where the Jewish nation looked like it was going to be wiped out off the face of the earth forever, in a place where there seemed complete hopelessness. You know, and we get, we get hung up as Christians on our theology and our doctrine of what, is, what does it look like in end times? What's it look like just before Jesus is coming back? And we've been through COVID and so obviously the, com- the conversation comes back up and all the books come out and all the theories come back. I know I was there in 1985 when everyone said Jesus is coming back in 1988. I, I, I had friends who made sure they got married and had kids because they wanted to have kids before Jesus came back so they could go through the tribulation time. It was fantastic logic. So I understand, but you try telling someone in 1939 or 1940 that they weren't living in the end times. You try telling someone in in, in America in 1860 as the Civil War was about to come down strong in the whole nation that they weren't living in the end times. And the trouble with us believers is we rewrite futurism based on what we're going through in the present. And so in all those phases, you've seen massive changes to what's been accepted doctrine of what's going to happen in the future of our life and how it's going to play out. Is it going to be bad for us? Is it going to be good for us? All those sorts of things. And if you know church history and the the history of theology, you'll have tracked this path where you think Christians can't make up their mind and they're changing their belief based on their circumstance on this. It's a fascinating thing. So today I'm not going into that. What I'm going into is the non-negotiables. I want to go into the Christian hope, the thing that's never ever changed. Not the how-to and the wherefore on the way there so much as far as what's going to happen in in world politics and, and all that kind of thing, but what's going to happen to our soul in eternity. Because what's at the core of the human question of all this is a couple of very important questions. The first one, if I'm thinking about eternity, the elephant in the room is, well, I'm going to die one day. My body's going to cease functioning and decompose and, and all those things, just like everyone else's has and just like dogs and cats and mammals and dolphins do. I mean, we're all got, physically, we have the same fate, it seems, before us. And so the Christian asks the question, am I more than that? Am I more than physical? And our heart responds, most of humanity, our heart responds with a yes. There's a thing called an SQ, a spiritual quotient. And some have more than others, just like some have more IQ than others, some have more EQ and so on. There's a spiritual quotient. And that spiritual quotient is a measure of our sense of the awareness of of eternity, a sense of the awareness of the unseen realm. And half the people who we think would have a high spiritual quotient, we call lunatics because they're talking about clairvoyance, they're talking about all this sort of stuff. They've got unresolvedness in their their hearts, but they know that there's more than this physical reality that we have and they can't resolve it because they don't understand Jesus Christ and why he came. So there's people all over the place with high spiritual quotients and there are people in churches who have no spiritual quotient. It's fascinating. Am I more than a physical being? Scripture says yes. 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, may your spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has this tripartite view that we have a body, a physical body, yep. We have a soul, which is different from the spirit in the way he describes it. Soul, if you're a a psych or a counselor, is, is mind, your will, your emotions. But he also talks about this human spirit. And this is a spirit that's unique to humanity, which makes us a human being and a spirit that needs the spirit of God dwelling with it for us to find completeness. And he says, may your, all of those, all that architecture that makes you human be found blameless when he comes. So are we more than body? Yes. I'm not going to dwell too much on that. We'll take it for, for the sake we're in church. Uh, let's assume that that's true. 
Uh, it's one of the basic tenets of, of who we think we are. But the next question that comes from that is, is there life beyond what we currently see? And science, interestingly, is leaning stronger and stronger that way. It's, uh, even Hollywood is as well. Um, if, you, if you look at the science and where they're going with uh, quantum physics, um, multiverse, all the terms that are becoming more and more common, the idea that some matter, some existence can happen everywhere at once, every when at once is now taken as given in science. Uh, it's almost like the description of God that we take for granted from the Bible, that he's all-seeing, all-knowing, he's the alpha, the mega, he's been... He's before, he's after, all those things is perfectly described in that same sort of terminology. So science is less and less becoming in opposition to what we would call faith. In fact, I, I believe in, in almost every way they align well. You don't have to lack a scientific mind to have faith. But Paul goes in there and he, and he talks about this and, and we, we're considering now the whole idea of resurrection. We're saying, what happens after this physical body dies? Because the New Testament promises resurrection, that we, we somehow, we become someone new again. And Jesus proved that. That was the whole idea of Easter Sunday, the resurrection day. It can be done. He was as dead as dead can be. They had a sword in him. He was lifeless. He was gone. They waited three days. It was over. And yet he rose as if it had never happened and yet went further again and came with a resurrected body. So he proved as what the Bible talks about as the first fruits gave permission for us who believe in him to be resurrected in the same way. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and, and what I want to do is let Scripture talk more for itself than me try to explain it today and bring lots of Scriptures in here. So 1 Corinthians 15, 35, Paul says, but someone, many people, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? He goes on in a few verses later, he says, there are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. And so we, we see that we have a physical body and we have a, a resurrected heavenly body. Hopefully it's better than this old sucker because I tell you, it's getting harder every year to, to behave the way I did when I was in my 20s. So I'm hoping it's a bit like that, but better. Um, there is no definition in Scripture. I, I mentioned last week in passing that Jesus' resurrected body may well have been the reason why they didn't recognise him because he, he would have looked fundamentally different. And yet uh, he had the scars, which we would call imperfection on his resurrected perfect body. So even the scars, the trauma that he'd been through, is redeemed, sanctified, and becomes part of the future story. And I just, for me, it just nods ahead and, and hints at the fact that that which he redeems in our life, the hurt, the pain, the sickness, the stuff that we go through, and yet he heals and he redeems that in our life and turns it into something beautiful, is also something that we will carry with us as we go on. So I want to give the big picture first of all, and, and what we find in Scripture is that the original creation story, what we find in Genesis 1 and 2, was the original plan of God dwelling with humanity uh, and humanity exercising uh, choice, uh, creativity, um, invention, all those sorts of things. And then we get this messy part from Genesis 3 uh, through till when Jesus comes back, which is most of the Bible. So we read most of the Bible, we're thinking this is the tension, the trouble that we're in, not recognising that the bookends of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21, actually, it's like the reset button. He says, no, that original plan, I haven't changed my mind on that, and nor was I surprised that anything has happened in between, but what you saw in Genesis 1, you're going to see again in Revelation 21, the end of the book, and it's going to be then, much like it was then, except quite possibly better. 
in the sense of humanity. It's not going to be just an Adam and Eve there. It's going to be all of those who place their faith in Christ together. With the accumulated experience, knowledge, all that sort of things, there'll still be invention, there'll still be creativity, there'll still be the arts. It's going to be just fantastic, undefiled by human sin and, and pride and prejudice and so on. So in Revelation 21, we get this picture, which is a prophetic picture of what the future for us will look like. And the writer says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So this is not the paradise we talk about now. He's saying that one day there's a day coming when the new heaven and the new earth will be. It'll, it'll either be this earth renewed or, or a new one, but for us it will feel like perfect earth. So think of the perfect, most perfect scene. Anyone got an Apple TV there and you have a go on a screensaver? You see perfect earth, Grand Canyon, the fjords of Norway, um, Brisbane River. Um, <laughs> look like that, but better, better. <laughs> So I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea as there was no sea in the earlier part of creation. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, from the throne of God saying, look, a dwelling place, and just keep that phrase in your mind, a dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. So dwelling place and be with them is the key phrase here. Because we sum that word up in, in a single word from the Greek, which is paradise. And paradise means where humanity dwells with God. So you'll remember the, um, the man on the cross. when uh, He'd done nothing except say, Jesus, remember me. He said, you'll be with me today in paradise. You'll be with God. So wherever God is and humanity dwells together, that is paradise. Therefore, the Garden of Eden at one point was paradise. Revelation 21 is talking about paradise. It's a new heaven, a new earth where we dwell with him. In the meantime, paradise is somewhere else. So for us to be with God requires sin to be overcome for us to be with him. That dwelling place is an interesting term. It means to tabernacle, to be in the same dwelling with him. And for us to be with him, obviously it requires the power of sin and death to be overcome and that breath of God to be restored because you can't dwell with God if God's not dwelling in you. So heaven is really where the Christian wants to be because the Christian wants to be with God. They've made the choice to be with God. And as we saw, the definition of hell in its simplest terms is human choice to not be with God and what it looks like to be completely separated from God forever. So eternal life with God is not the default. It's a choice that we must make to place our faith in him and have God dwell in our hearts. And God honours our choice one way or the other. We either say, God, your will be done, or he says to us, well, your will be done. He honours that choice. So the question for us is, what happens to those who die? What happens to us when we pass away? Is there a, is there a tunnel? Is there a light? Is there a, an angel? What happens there? Well, let's delve into that from what we can know from Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, For we know that if the earthly tent, meaning his body, is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven. So he, he starts to use allegory, tent, dwelling house, a house, but he's talking about our body. Not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan. And all of us over 55 said, Amen. And meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Oh, yes, indeedy. So for us, we know that there's going to be a better day. There's going to be a moment where we're with God in a new body, and somehow we haven't figured out the detail of that, but we know going there is going to make the discomfort that we endure now bearable, endurable, meaningful. We know that there's a trajectory that we're on, that regardless of what happens here, God can redeem that moment by moment. We can make the, the big choice 
to exercise faith in the midst of our trouble, allow him to redeem those situations and turn all things as dark as they are into something worthwhile and good because one day it's all going to be redeemed and I'm going to be there with him. So what happens when we pass away is the first fork in the road to eternity and there are three judgments it talks about in Scripture. Today I'm only talking about two. The first is what we call uh, the judgment of faith. It's where there's an instant decision. If if, if you've placed your faith in Christ, that decision's essentially already been made. It's it's irreconcilable. It can't be undone. And this judgment of faith determines whether you've placed your faith in Christ or not. On accepting Christ as your saviour, a believer's name, the Bible says, is written in the Lamb's book of life. I'm hoping it's a big book. And our name is there, indelibly painted in there. And in the book of Revelation, it says, the one who is victorious will be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. So we see Jesus there opening that book and saying, well, if your name is in the book and you want your name in that book, right? This is the book. There's, there's that book and then there's other books. There's a whole heap of other books that come in the final day of judgment, the great judgment. You don't want to be in that book, any of them. You want to be in this book, the book of life. And it's very easy to do that You place your faith in what Jesus did on the cross to pay the price for the sin in a way that you never could so that you could have relationship with God because that's what you wanted to have. When you do that and his spirit comes and dwells with you again, your name is indelibly written in that book of life. You can't rub it out. You can't be stupid enough to get it rubbed out because it says those who persevere, and it means those who literally um, are victorious in the sense of they've kept at that. They've always wanted to be with God, regardless of how much they mess it up and say, Lord, I want to be with you. You can't get your name rubbed out of that book. Theologians call it persevering in the faith. And in many ways, it's almost like we can't help it. It's the one thing we seem to have no choice in. Because the Spirit, once the Spirit's in you, how can you reject that? It's irresistible grace. And so this decision is made, and, we, and we're then in the Lamb's book of life. And then as we pass away, we're instantly taken up to be with Him in heaven because... Heaven slash paradise is where God is with us, and so we're there with him. And the fascinating thing about this heaven, talked, and it's described in uh, the New Testament as the third heaven. The first heaven is the air I breathe, in their terms. The second heaven is the sky I see. The third heaven is the dwelling place of God with humanity. So Paul took a visit there, and uh, this isn't as uncommon as we would think. The anecdotes of people who've just had a bit of a visit up there, and for whatever Uh, reason had an opportunity to come back. Paul, the Apostle Paul, was one of those. He says, I know a man, and he's talking about himself here, if you understand the way he's writing. I know a man who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things. So he's now struggling, and he really sensed before God he didn't have the right to talk about all that he'd seen up there because he just couldn't put words around it. And it wasn't his to tell. But in the, in the story of Lazarus in the New Testament or the man on the cross, we saw that they were to go straight up there to this place that we call paradise, we call heaven. And in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that you know, to be absent from this body means to be present with the Lord. As soon as I'm out of this body, I'm up there with him. And it might surprise you, there's been a lot of studies, secular and Christian into people's experience, who've experienced near-death experiences, NDEs. They've even got an acronym now, they're NDEs. Uh, No one questions that apparently. And I read one secular study uh, of NDEs, uh, particularly of children 
who had no prior understanding or exposure to things of God, the Bible, anything like that. So this is a purely secular study. And, it, and it, uh, I, I think it was something like two or 3,000 people that were surveyed, mostly children. And it said of them, 75.4%, I'm going to give you the absolute stats here, 75.4% had an out-of-body experience, consciousness separated from the events that were being observed. So when we say that, it might be someone in a hospital bed and they're passing away and the nurses are frantically around, the spirit is now observing. And when they've come back, they've recalled events that they would never and should never have known about in such incredible detail. It's astounded the doctors and nurses. There's no way you could have known that. You could, no way you could have understood that. 75.4% recalled that experience. That's pretty comprehensive. 64.6 experienced a mystical, brilliant light, this is the way they described it, with most overwhelming peace. 33.8% recall passing through the tunnel that we, we often hear people talking about. 57.3% encountered other mystical beings and friends and family who died. This is kids we're talking about. 52.2% uh, experienced or uh, recalled a heavenly realm. So a realm where there's peace, there's love, and I can put all sorts of adjectives around that. There was something going on there that was not like this world. This was something way better. 56% were given special knowledge, insights that they could have not have otherwise known. So they've come back with new information that they've imparted and everyone's scratching their head going, how could you ever know that? Now the interesting thing out of this study was that believers and unbelievers took the same path and yet there was a common barrier for those who were unbelievers. They experienced different things. If you're a believer in Christ, they, they went on to experience a few different things. And that a choice is sometimes given to believers if they want to return down to this earth, you'd want to have a very good reason to do that. But some did. So they're talking about this experience of, of heaven. And so what is this current heaven like? Is it non-physical? Uh, is, is it mystical and angels with wings sitting on clouds? Probably not. Um, I say that because Jesus is a man. Jesus was a physical body that they could touch and feel and talk to, and he went there. So it's probably going to be physical. Paul said, was it physical? I don't know. It felt like it was, but I, couldn't, I don't know what was going on, you know. Um, but it, it probably will have a physical sense about it. Um, I just want to read a couple of teasers from this book, and this is a book written by a guy called uh, John Burke. Some of you may have read this. I read it... Um, and it was really helpful for me. It was given to me by a guy who was probably within a year of passing away and he knew he was. And uh, I actually know John Burke. I met him some time ago. He's a, he's a, a really respectable pastor guy. And he, was, he had this positive curiosity about those who pass away uh, and what happens then. So he actually documented a thousand of those cases personally and wrote a book uh, accounting what they'd seen. And I actually have uh, a, a half a dozen of these books down. This is one of the best uh, non-scriptural, if I can say. This is purely anecdotal. And so you take it at that level. I've got a half a dozen down here. If anybody after the message wants to uh, grab one of those, um, if you could just pay the expense in your next offering, that'd, that'd, be, that'd help us. But um, it's a great book. It builds a lot of faith in those who uh, you have a loved one who's passed away or uh, you're just very mindful of that. It's a very encouraging book. Let me give you a common story out of that book uh, of someone who had an NDE. I was immediately greeted by a group of people wearing robes of a sort and were absolutely exploding with a pure, pure love. It was a welcoming committee. I absolutely knew that they, were, that they were there to welcome me and greet me and make me feel loved and comfortable. They had physical bodies, heads, arms, legs. I knew without any doubt that I'd known them and loved them as long as I existed 
I knew that they knew me and loved me as long as I existed. It was a joy at an unadulterated core level. You can see why people battle to explain with with our language what they've been through because it's beyond our experience. It's beyond our language. Another one, my arrival was joyously celebrated and a feeling of absolute love was palpable as we hugged and danced and greeted each other. The intensity, the depth and the purity of these feelings and sensations were far greater than I could ever describe and far greater than anything experienced on earth. I love my husband and my kids with great intensity. It's just that God's world is exponentially more colourful and intense. It just sounds fantastic. And you, you read the detail of what life is like. Uh, it's just almost beyond imagination. But it puts into perspective the troubles that we experience here. You know, it puts into perspective, why would I do the right thing? Why would I pay the price to be a Christian in this world? Why would I go through that? This is why. Because this, this hairline that exists, that is our physical existence on the, on the horizon-to-horizon rope that is eternity, and we just have this little scratch on there that is this life. And how we live that life determines how we're going to live the rest of, of our life in eternity. It makes all of this worth it, doesn't it? And it correlates with what even the scriptures say in Revelation. And I'm going to piece together some verses here from the book of Revelation where it says, I saw people from every nation and tribe and people and language. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. He will lead them to springs of life-giving water. He took me in the spirit to a great high mountain and he showed me a holy city, Jerusalem. It shone with the glory of God. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the centre of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit. The tree of life is back. Genesis 1, tree of life. Revelation 21, the tree of life is back. That's what we're designed for. And uh, yeah, I recommend some great books on that later on. So there is another judgment. There isn't just the judgment of faith. The judgment of faith says, are you in, are you out? There's this other judgment called the the judgment seat of Christ. And this isn't for unbelievers. This is just for us, just for believers. And it's called the Bema, B-E-M-A, the Bema seat of Christ that Christians at some point uh, go through. And it's not a judgment of failure. It's a judgment for reward. So it's all good. It's all positive because the price for our sins has been paid for. It says of this seat in 2 Corinthians 5, for we, talking to Christians here, Paul was talking to believers, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And so even though he says the word bad there, it's, it's, it's our language, it's our translation of what he's saying. It's a reward based on faithfulness. It's a rewards-oriented judgment. It's a celebration. It doesn't affect your salvation, but it will affect what happens next. It affects the reward. And, and you know, what is reward? Let's, let's go there. In 1 Corinthians 3, he says, If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is. He's talking now about the, the judgment seat of Christ. Because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So you're still in there, but it's like, 
If you lived your life, you said, I've placed my faith in Christ, but I'm living the rest of my life for myself. My money's mine. My, my job is mine. My ambitions are mine. You've done nothing to, to, in response to that gospel that you believe in. It's like you still get there, but it's like, whew, that was close, padding down the flame. That's sort of the picture that it's giving there. So you'll still get saved, you'll still be in heaven, and you'll still be enjoying stuff, but it'll be a different experience to what others will be experiencing, interestingly. In Colossians 3, he says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. So what you do every single day, whatever your experience is, if it's home, if it's school, if it's at work, you can do that as unto the Lord. And by doing that, living faithfully and being God's person in that environment, it brings reward because you're being proven faithful. And so those who have hands that are faithful can receive much more. Those who don't know how to hold stuff, they can't give it when it comes. So whatever you do, work it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It's the Lord Christ you are serving. Every, you're not serving some dodgy boss. You're not serving the government. You're serving God. And all of us get, it's a flat playing field. We all get the same opportunity. We don't get all the same uh, things endowed that was at birth. Some of us are more gifted than others. Some of us are more wealthy, come from great families, some come from dysfunctional families, but that's completely irrelevant. It's what you do with it that determines the size of the prize. It doesn't matter. The bogan from Logan and the, and the wealthy person from Pullenvale, they can be, none of that determines where they're going to be in heaven. I think that's fantastic because I'm the bogan from Logan, mate. I, I'm looking for faithfulness to win the day here. Not that I'm in competition with anybody. I'm just wanting a good house up there. There's actually, I'm not sure about the theology about that, so just wipe that one from the tape. But. So Jesus talked into this whole idea of rewards and coupled it to the idea of inheritance. I'm going long here. Uh, do you, can I keep going? It gets better. Okay, so inheritance slash reward is what happens. It says in Matthew 25, because Jesus talked in this language all the time, it'll be like a man going on a journey, talking about himself, who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, the other two, another one, and each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. So he invested in them, expecting that all of us would invest in what he's invested in us, that we would invest it. He came back in the allegory. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. This is an allegory of what's going to happen at the beam of seat of Christ. In another parable, which is very similar, he says, take charge of 10 cities. You know, it's a big win. He was given a little bit. He's got 10 cities. It's like, wow, there's no correlation here. But he wraps up this by saying, whoever has will be given more and they will, be, they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. So who is rich in opportunity here will not necessarily be rich in reward. It's all about faithfulness, faith with what God has given you, with who you are and so on. That will determine what happens. What does that look like in heaven? I actually don't know, and it doesn't explain it. But if you can extrapolate reasonably, um, pictures of the new heaven and the new earth, particularly from the old prophets, say that the government will be upon his shoulder. So picture a couple of billion Christians living in the new heaven and the new earth. There is still going to be government, because the government will be upon his shoulder. There'll still be administration. There'll still be structure to society. There'll be engineers and invention and artisans and all that, all of that going on and continuing. There'll be organisation and structure to that. And even Paul says, don't you know you will be judging the angels? You'll be, you're, you'll be concerned with the things in this new life. But it'll just be without corruption. 
it'll be you know, perfect under God that Jesus will be the head and we get to play our part in this infrastructure that is human civilization without any limits. It's just going to be fantastic. So I would assume inheritance and reward play, determines what sort of part we play in that sort of life. So the only question that really matters as a wrap-up is, is are you going to live in eternity? The Scriptures say anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, will be in the Lamb's book of life. If you're here this morning and it's your first time in church or you've never, you've never squared this one away, have, you've never placed your faith in Christ, this is the moment to do that. You want to be in this book of life. You, only get, you don't get to change your mind on that after you've passed away. It's a, what decision you make in this life it determines how you spend eternity. And it's easier saying, I believe, I rely on what Jesus has done for me on the cross, what we celebrated through Easter. I could never have done it. I couldn't have lived up to it. He did it for me. Thank you, God. I accept that. Will you come into my heart? Will your spirit come and dwell with me again? That is the person who lives in eternity. That's what calling on the name of the Lord is. But the question for those of us who've already done that is, are you living for eternity? How much of your life do you regard as investment? Because every breath, every moment can be an investment in your eternity. How faithful are we being with the things he's given us? Our, our, our intellect, our energy, our bodies, our families, the seeds of the gospel. This is the one that's, that's burning me now as a church. How do we be faithful now? We've had a good time at church. We've had four years. We've gotten through chaos, but now here we are. What happens now? What's got us to where we are is not going to get us to where we need to be. And so there needs to be some shifting, some changing that goes on, a fulfillment of what we started this place to be. It's so exciting. It's going to start with prayer as we seek God all about that. And I want to talk more about that when I get back from my trip away. But as a church, as a leadership, as, as each of us, we all need to make the decision how much of my day am I going to determine is lived by faithfulness in who he's made me to be and what he's given me. How do I be faithful with my horrible situation? Might be your question. By exercising faith, by returning to joy, by having that situation not own you. That faithfulness, that's a Christian's finest hour. It's not giving from abundance. It's having faith in the darkest moment. When the seas are stormiest, saying, I will believe. Even if he slay me, as Job said, I will still love him. That's faithfulness. That brings reward. Heaven sees that and applauds you. We all get the moment, every moment of every day to be that person. Let's pray together. Come on, baby. Father, we, just, we love this reality that as a Christian, we cannot lose. We cannot lose. Worst case scenario, we win. Father, I pray that each of us would go away from this place with a hope that fires our soul that compels us to look at whatever situation as, as little or great as it is, as blessed or not. And no, we can invest that because what gets rewarded is faith. So help us to exercise faith and faithfulness in all that we have. And just while our heads are bowed, if you haven't placed your faith in Christ before and you would like to do that, Follow me in this prayer. Father, I haven't known you, but I want to know you and I want to be known by you. 
I lay all that is who I am before you. And no, it's inadequate to earn the right to get to heaven. But heaven's where I want to be. I believe in you. I rely on you. Come into my heart. Save me. Amen. And for the rest of us, Father, I pray that you would reveal yourself. Give each of us the faith, the hope, and the love to live for eternity. Show us what that looks like in Jesus' name.